This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Based on shocking true events, the new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, tells the story of a savage murder in a small town. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Today, people are working to innovate and do more in their workdays, but coming up with fresh ideas and quick responses can be tough. Introducing Grammarly Go, a product offering personalized generative AI communication assistance that will change the way you write. With just a few clicks, Grammarly Go can ideate, compose, and rewrite thoughtfully, accelerating your productivity and unlocking your creativity. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. Riddled in the heart of Dixie. I am the tail of a kite in the Birmingham sky. I am the crumb of hair between the teeth of an Afro pick, the slats of butter in biscuit dough. I am Sheriff Taylor's clear breaths in that backcountry whistle, the rocks beating beneath Opie's country toes. I am the smell of fatback in a cast iron skillet, the crust flaked off of cornbread in the oven. I am the sparkling bellies of trains as they pass by Railroad Park. I am the pothole cupping a tire, the red dirt on the hill near grandmother's house. I am the sour and the grain. I am the lemonade and pound cake the gulp of air in y'all. I am the tick of stars becoming brilliant in the sky. Open your mouth and let me land on your tongue. Let me wash you in Alabama heat and tell you who you are. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shereen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. And we're live in Birmingham, Alabama. We've got a great show for you tonight. Mayor Randall Woodfin is in the house to answer a few of our questions. We've got a segment we call Ask Code Switch, where we take listeners' questions about race and identity and we try to answer them, and we're gonna have some help for that one. But first, poet and resident Birminghamian, Ashley M. Jones is on stage with us for a segment we're calling Ask a Poet. Ashley M. Jones' award-winning debut poetry collection, Magic City Gospel, came out last year. She's the founding director of the Magic City Poetry Festival here in Birmingham. She teaches creative writing at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. So, that poem you just read. Yes. Riddled in the Heart of Dixie. Mm -hmm. What's the story behind that poem? So, this poem, like many in this book, um, was written as an assignment for grad school. Ah. Uh, yeah, it's very glamorous. This whole book, it was actually my graduate thesis um, for my MFA. And so the prompt was to write a riddle. So I decided to write a riddle about what Birmingham was and all these things are what we are. 
So Ashley, you describe your first book, Magic City Gospel, as a love song to Birmingham and to the South, but you also said that you didn't always have that love for your hometown and from the region you're from. Can you talk about that ambivalence you felt about home and how you came around to a place where you could write a poem, like Riddled in the Heart of Dixie, the poem you just read for us? I left, and that's how I came around. I'm serious. I went to Miami, to Florida International University for my MFA. Growing up in the South, a lot of us who grew up here, we have a love-hate relationship. And I hated it when I was a kid. I thought, oh, I'm getting out of here as soon as I can. We're so backwards. We're so this. And once I left, I thought, why did I ever leave? This is my home. This place is so full of so much. And it can be so much. And that's why I came back to help it to be what I want it to be. I'm from California. Okay. Jean's from Philly, Pennsylvania. Uh, This is my first time here in Birmingham. This is Jean's second time here. Okay. And we were wondering, what do you think people like us who aren't from here get wrong about race in the South? I think the biggest thing that people get wrong about race in the South, those who are not from the South, is that we're somehow not a part of the United States of America, that we're somehow a different, you know, the, a layer of hell that doesn't exist in the rest of the country. Um, thank you. If y'all want to shout amen, like, okay. <laughs> um, but that's what I think gets wrong so often. People think that these problems don't exist everywhere else, and we've seen time and again that they do. Um, maybe it's that we're a little more open with our issues. Um, I think in an interview once I said, well, we'll hose you down with the water, whereas somebody else will just poison you with it. Mm. And I mean, that's, that's basically what it is. And so much of your poetry seems to be engaging with the past, right? You're recontextualizing the past, reimagining it. Your book wrestles with, you know, Sally Hemings. There's Horace King, who was a black architect and politician who built Alabama in a lot of ways. There's George Wallace, obviously, the segregationist governor. Do you feel like you're doing the work of a historian in your poetry? So I don't feel that my work with history is separate at all from my work as a poet or really just as a human being. Um, I think that we all carry histories with us. There are so many histories that have made me possible. Um, So I can't be from Alabama and not know and tell that story of George Wallace. I can't be a black woman and not tell the story of Sally Hemings. It's always with me all the time and it makes me who I am. Um, And as a poet, that's my job to tell the story of humans. And so I have to, of course, have history in there all the time. Do you hear from people that bringing up history all the time stops you from getting past it? I've heard that before, and that doesn't make sense to me because we have to remember what happened and what is happening in order for it not to happen anymore. And I'm a teacher too, so of course I want us to learn and relearn and relearn forever. We can't leave history as history. It's part of the present as well. I mean, I feel like that's the perfect segue into the poem that you're going to read for all of us that's going to close out this Ask a Poet segment. Viewing a KKK uniform at the Civil Rights Institute. All you can really tell at first is that it was starched. Some Betty Sue, Marge, Jane, some proper girl with a great black iron made those corners sharp. The hood, white, and ablaze with creases, body flat and open for husband, brother, son. Behind the glass, it seems frozen, waiting for summer night to melt it into action, for the clean white flame of God to awaken its limbs. 
In front of it, you are dwarfed. You imagine a pair of pupils behind the empty holes of the mask. Behind the stiff cotton, would the eyes squint to see through small white slits? Or would they open wide as a burning house to hunt you down until you pooled like old rope before them? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Ashley M. Jones. You can check out Ashley's work online at ashleymichellejones.wordpress.com. Ashley's newest book is called Dark Thing, and it's going to be out in February. Now we'd like to introduce our next guest for the evening. He grew up here. He graduated from Shades Valley High School. Go Mounties. Go Mounties. I don't know what that means. Go Mounties. Go Mounties. Uh, Back in the day, he bagged groceries at Western Market in Crestwood. And he's a graduate of Samford University's Cumberland School of Law. He's worked for the city throughout his entire career. He's all Beham everything. Beham, right? (laughs) Beham. Just last year, he was sworn in as the 30th mayor of Birmingham, becoming the youngest person to hold that position in 120 years. Ladies and gentlemen, Mayor Randall Woodfin! So, what do you want people to call you, Mr. Randall's Woodfin? Randall? Randall? Oh, Randall? Okay, cool. When people come here and they're new to your city, what's the one thing you say they have to go see or do before they leave? It is, um, it's, it's tough to answer that for one thing. So if a person's an outdoors person, I recommend um, Ruffner Park okay. or Red Mountain Park. If it's history and culture, I, I recommend the Civil Rights Museum, 16th Street Baptist Church, and... Of course, food always comes up. Mm-hmm. Of course. And you cannot just give one answer because we have an infinite amount of restaurants to choose from. Oh, very diplomatic. That's very, very diplomatic. diplomatic. It's, very po- it's a politician Before answer, Before he was man. mayor, he would have said one particular I, I restaurant. Have, I have my favorite. Oh. Okay. And it's your mama's. Yeah. Is that a place? It is a, is place. a place. It's not, it's not my actual, okay. it's not my actual mom's gonna house. Like, we're going to have to scrap on the stage? What are we doing? What are we doing? It's not my mother's house. Okay. It's an actual restaurant. What if you like to go out and you want to listen to music or go to a club or... Where does Mayor Randall Woodfin turn up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just say last Tuesday I had a drink at the Platinum. How about that? I'm going to ask you a very uh, politically charged question here. Auburn, Alabama. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. One thing we actually didn't mention when we introduced you is that uh, you went to Morehouse. Right. Um, one of the most prestigious historically black colleges in the United States. You've been on record as saying is uh, at Morehouse, student government is like varsity sports. You were the head of student government. That's correct. How is running student government at Morehouse different from running, you know, a city? <laughs> <laughs> and also, who is better dressed, the dudes at Morehouse or the city council of Birmingham? <laughs> Two worlds. I would say what's similar is people have high demands and high requests and a lot of issues and concerns for whatever level you represent people. They come directly to you and want you to fix something, solve something, address something. So that's similar, but different in the the fact that this is the largest city in the state of Alabama, so there are many 
and multiple issues that I am tasked with and responsible for addressing. I want to address, hopefully my city councilors don't get mad, but I would definitely say my brothers at Morehouse. <laughs> Before you were mayor, you worked in the city attorney's office. Correct. For almost a decade. Uh, you were also president of the school board. Is that correct? correct? Yes. And on our show, on Code Switch, we talk a lot about racial inequities in public education as well as the justice system. And I was just wondering, in those roles that you had before mayor, could you in your own way address those inequities? Definitely as a, a lawyer for the city of Birmingham, consider it this way. The frame is 10 out of 10 people who saw me did not want to see me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you were a prosecutor. Yeah. No right. one wants to interact with the court system. No mm-hmm. one wants to be a victim, a defendant. I don't even think the defense lawyers want to be there for real. But in my position, I, have, I had choice. I also had discretion. And it's easy. I've seen it for people to be abusive in that position. But for me, it was all about how to help people, how to um, bring issues to a resolve, how to help victims. But believe it or not, how to help defendants as well. And I can tell you how I know it worked. The people would see me in the street and says, hey, thank you so much. You, you remember me? You represented me. And in my head, I'm like, actually, no, I didn't. <laughs> I was your prosecutor, but it's how you treat people. Mm. And so in, how, in treating people right, I think you can find a way to close some issues that, is, um, that are system-wide, but at the same time help that individual. So as part of your platform, uh, you said you wanted to pay special attention to all 99 neighborhoods That's in right. Birmingham. Pop quiz. Name all 99 neighborhoods. You got 60 seconds. <laughs> now I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. That's a no. good pop quiz, though. Uh, I mean, can you do it? No. Oh, okay. All right. That's the same. <laughs> and for real, in the past, uh, you talked about the importance of revitalizing areas of Birmingham. In cities all across the country, there's this tension between revitalization and gentrification and, and sort of building these communities up and displacing the people that were there. And I'm curious of how you, Birmingham and how you're thinking about that tension and resolving that. I've been paying attention to other cities. In 2018, you can't call D.C. Chocolate City anymore. Hot Atlanta, we've seen the changes there. And then you see it even in a city like Austin. I think for Birmingham, watching other cities, what can we do? A city made up of 99 neighborhoods where 88 of them are all black, 11 are majority white. 88 are black, Mm -hmm. 11 are white. Right. Now, I think everyone here who's in Birmingham know we've seen growth in several places. You can't necessarily control gouging of rent, but what you can do is put things in places to make sure residents have notice, longer notice. And there are other legal ways and creative ways you can create to make sure residents aren't displaced. Birmingham is sacred ground. It is. It's sacred ground because it's where black people encountered the absolute worst evils of racism and fought back and fought for a society where equality and justice for all actually mean something. And you've written that Birmingham today is really a testament to reconciliation. And I wanna know, what did you mean by that? What does that mean for you? When we look at the history of America, we haven't always been honest. What was on paper wasn't necessarily in practice. Racism was real, it was tangible. And the difference between Birmingham and any other city in America at that time was our differences were actually reckoned on the world stage. So everyone saw it. Um, They saw the brutality. They saw the racism. They saw the bigotry. They saw the evil. They saw saw it. 
at the exact same time, they, they saw the Fred Shuttlesworths of our world, um, the Martin Luther King Juniors of our world, and others fight back. And in that reckoning, we were able to get some, a lot of wins out of that for black people. I think in 2018, when I fast forward, and there have been so many stories, when you think about the four little girls, there was a fifth girl that survived, Sarah. And when I think about her, she's a definition of reconciliation, where she spoke recently. Um, there was a reenactment of the Children's Crusade, the march, and she spoke in front of an audience, but the majority of the room was full of children. And she spoke of forgiveness and forgiving to what happened to her, what happened to her sister, what happened to her friends. And I think if I had a tangible example to give of just what reconciliation means, she embodies that. But earlier you talked about how, you know, 88 of the 99 neighborhoods here are black and 11 are white. Right. So segregation is still a thing in Birmingham. The poverty rate here is twice the amount of the national poverty rate. Um, and that's in a city that's three-fourths black. Do you think that that says something else about reconciliation that's not so pretty? You're right. There is a massive amount of not just poverty, but concentrated poverty in the city of Birmingham. Um, when we think about everything in the 50s and 60s around the intentionality around housing, housing discrimination, it wasn't just at the local level. It actually started at the federal level. And it was at the state level as well. And those policies were enacted at the local level. And then when there was a final, final breakthrough in the late 60s, uh, we all know white flight took place. The National Realtors Association talked about how when that happened across the entire city of Birmingham and other cities in America too, property value went down, suburban, more suburban America came online. That includes the fragmentation of Jefferson County, more expanding of other municipalities and suburban municipalities outside of the city. You fast forward today in Birmingham, and that's reflected in the makeup of a city that's probably the fifth blackest city in America. That's how you get three-fourths. That's how you get 88 neighborhoods with 11 majority. Those 11 neighborhoods are concentrated in the south and southeastern portion of a city, and they back in one of the wealthiest cities, suburban cities in America. Uh, Mountain Brooks, probably like it's in the top 20 most richest cities in America. Next to the seat city of the 7th Congressional District in Alabama, which is the third poorest U.S. Congressional District in America. Right? So there's just a massive amount of inequity right here. Right next to each other. Right? In housing, in education, in transportation, in employment opportunities, and on and on and on. One of the things we are doing around racial equity is we want to create an equity tool to assess equity in each department. We then, as, a, as an administration, can be intentional about how we create more equity for the services we deliver from make sure it touches all 99 neighborhoods, regardless of socioeconomic, regardless of race. So one of the things that leaders all over the country are wrestling with is, you know, the president of the United States has used some very divisive rhetoric, right? And I'm curious as to how that's played out in Birmingham. Have, has that sort of animated and agitated a lot of these deep-seated inequities that you're talking about, these centers of power not being evenly distributed? I think it has. This trade war is real in the state of Alabama, not just Birmingham metro area where Bibb County is next door and Tuscaloosa County is next door. And we have residents 
who are employees of these organizations where the auto industry, it works very well for the state of Alabama. That doesn't work either for Birmingham or for our state. President Trump has a zero tolerance policy on illegal immigration. We know this. And we also know that here in Birmingham, you've gotten a little bit of criticism from the immigrants' rights community because they really want you to sign an executive order, to basically put in writing that you won't use your city's resources for immigration enforcement, that you won't use your city's resources to surveil Muslim residents. Can you respond to that criticism? First thing is this, is that I'm not, like we're not going to use our police to do anything around what I call rounding up people. We just don't believe in that. I don't believe in that as mayor. I've had a clear, direct conversation with my police chief. I've had a clear and direct conversation with my chief of our city jail. We're not in that business. So they're not going to ask people their immigration status? No. No, we're not going to do that. I believe in welcoming cities. That is something that we past exploring. That is something we're going to actually do. Um, they, put a, they put a paper in my hand and said, sign it. That's not how I necessarily govern. I read it. I turned it over to my legal department. Um, but I also turned over to my legal department welcoming cities. And when we look at both of those, I think not only protecting our immigrant community, but making sure we do things beyond ICE is important. Um, welcoming cities, what do you mean by that? What's the discrepancy between the two things? Because you were talking about there's these two things. I think Sanctuary City is narrowly tailored and isolated towards don't have your police enforce certain things of rounding up and hurting people, which I agree with. We're not going to do that. But welcoming cities is more broad about how do we help our immigrant community? And as I, as I go to Birmingham City Schools, I can tell you our immigrant community continues to grow. Mm-hmm. So it's, for me, it's a, it's, it's, it has a broader positive impact, whereas sanctuary is, don't do this. Welcoming is, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask a clarifying question, too. You mentioned that you said to immigrants' rights groups that you would not enable ICE through the police force here. That's correct. But you, but you would not codify that? They want me to codify it in signing sanctuary. I don't, I'm going to do welcoming cities. You have a long political career ahead of you. What's next for you? You going to run for governor? What's next? Because we know you're thinking ahead. So I just want to serve the good people of Birmingham and oh, focus yeah. on my job. <laughs> there we go. No, 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 no. He just answered my question. He just no, answered no. for me. I was trying to get that one out the way. Oh, that's a really good answer. As far as I'm concerned, being a mayor, period, but then being the mayor of your hometown is probably the best political job you can ever have. I don't necessarily have to ever run for office outside of mayor again. Like, never. Are there term limits here? No term limits. Oh. But should there be term limits? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, he said at Code Switch that he no, wanted to be no mayor one, for life. No one should be in this job forever. This is recorded. So if you're still mayor 20 years from now, we will be playing this back to you to remind you what you said here on Code Switch. All right, this was awesome. This was very dope. This was great. Thank you. We're going to go to our next segment, but we were wondering if you would actually stay and join us and help us. 
answer some listener questions. They're going to be harder than yours? Oh, yeah. Probably, yeah. All right, I'll do it. All right. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Since 1971, dedicated to fighting hate and bigotry in all of its forms and seeking justice for the most vulnerable members of society. Learn more at splcenter.org. Hey, this is Stretch Armstrong. And this is Bobito Garcia, the hosts of What's Good. We're talking with one of the coolest cats around, Lenny Kravitz. I remember this kid walked up to us in the hallway and he goes, Your dad's white! And he pointed his finger like that. Subscribe now. We're about to do a segment that people love. It's kind of like an advice segment. We call it Ask Code Switch. And we have listeners write in to us with questions about race and identity in America. And we try to answer their questions. We get in people's business. We it's do fun. get in people's business, and it's really fun. Our expert guest is WBHM's news director, Gigi Duban. So Gigi's going to be our expert guest. Mayor Woodfin is also going to say it's smart things. <laughs> <laughs> but before we go on, Gigi Duban is not from Birmingham, Alabama. That's right. She's actually from Staten Island. Shaolin. Shaolin. For the Wu-Tang Clan fans among us. could be a Wu-Tang name. It could be. <laughs> you were supposed to be here for two years? That's that right. That was what, 19 years ago? More than that? 97, yeah. I am one of those damn Yankees that stayed. Birmingham is just, uh, it's just a town that does that to you. It just draws you in. It's easy to live here. The food is ridiculous. The food is ridiculous. Ridiculously good. People are nice to you. In the street, people make eye contact with you. That does not happen in New York. You know? It's not happening. I mean, people wave. You know, my parents come down to visit and they're like, why is he waving at us? <laughs> Do I know? Do you know him? I don't know him. So it's just a really friendly place. It's easy. It's home. Yes. <laughs> Sounds amazing. All right, let's get started. Our first question comes from a listener named Lisa Garaya. She's 21 years old, she's Indian American, and she grew up right here in Birmingham. She says everything she knows about how to treat people comes from growing up in Alabama, comes from her childhood here in Alabama. But things have changed for Lisa, and we're gonna listen to her question. When I came to college, I learned about various theories surrounding race, such as microaggressions and power dynamics. These were words that I had obviously never heard, but I began to feel like these examples of casual racism hit a little too close to home. For example, growing up, it was a pretty normal occurrence to be asked what kind of Indian I was, red dot or feather. I thought back on how time after time my white peers made me feel uncomfortable with their comments about my racial background, except at the time they were saying it, I didn't know why I was uncomfortable. Learning about microaggressions provided clarity, but also introduced a lot of anger in my life. It's frustrating. Do any other people of color who go through this epiphany feel this way? How do you decompress your past with this new outlook on it? So we have somebody who has some newfound information. It's making her angry and a little bit agitated. Um, and she doesn't quite know what to do with that information. Gigi? So this, this goes way back for me. So when I was in high school, and this was, I've got to add, this was in New York. 
both my parents are from Egypt. And my high school economics teacher said, so Gigi, are you going to grow up to become a terrorist one day? Wow. Right? <laughs> In the moment, it just kind of like, I don't know, it just, it didn't really register. And then you have that moment later where you're like, you're thinking, did that really just, it just happen? happen? Did that actually happen? Yeah. Did this person just say that? And you know, since moving here, I've gotten a lot of, what are you? Where are you from? Where are you from? And where are you from is kind of, you know, for me, I never know what they mean. Whether people mean where are you from geographically, because I might not sound like I'm from the South, or ethnically. And so I'll say, what do you mean? And then they, you know, sort of, you know, oh, I meant you don't sound like you're from the South, or ethnically, I mean, what, what's your ancestry? What's your heritage? I feel like sometimes it is a little jab, but other times, sometimes people just might not know, right? So you, you ask a clarifying question. Yeah. When you run into something that you feel like might be a, what Lisa calls a microaggression, you ask a clarifying question to figure out, all right, was that really a microaggression or was it in, an honest question, yeah. an open question? Mayor Woodfin, Randall? Yeah, definitely, yeah. So I, I would agree with her that microaggressions exist in, in Birmingham, but I think college is one of the best places to explore issues of race and ethnicity, et cetera, because even for Morehouse being an all-male, all-black campus, it's one of the most diverse places I've ever been to. I spent four years there, and this is the time um, for her personally to address that microaggression, but at the same time, um, colleges and universities across our nation. I think UAB can be the center of that to talk about this. That totally touches on what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm Puerto Rican and Iranian. I don't know if you heard that before. I don't know if <laughs> you listen to the Code Switch podcast, they say it every episode. Um, but it's a very confusing thing for people. And I feel like my whole life has been navigating what are you, where are you from, these type of questions. And it was in college when I decided I am going to learn as much as I can. And so I took a bunch of ethnic studies courses and I, I really made answering these questions and dealing with these kinds of overt and, and maybe not so overt microaggressions. I made this my life's work. She can, Lisa, you can do this too. You know, you can get paid to have these conversations. <laughs> it's not all horrible if that's what you want to do. And I mean, another thing is she talked about really caring about what Alabama taught her and what she learned here in Birmingham. So to me, that sounded like she really cares about this place and she really cares about the people here. And I feel like if that's the case and she really wants to maintain these friendships, if someone says something to her that feels off or feels like a microaggression, yes, ask the clarifying question. And then if she still feels like it was a microaggression, explain how, how to ask this question in a better way. If she feels like doing it, you know, if she wants to maintain these relationships, because sometimes people say things and they have no idea what they're saying. So if, yeah, if she's open to having these conversations with friends and family here in Birmingham, I would say do that. But I would say that sometimes people say those things and they're invested in not knowing what's wrong with it. You know what I mean? Like um, being comfortable in their ignorance. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I mean, and it's not just ignorance, right? There's like power behind a lot of it, right? So, I mean, I do think that there should be space for her to cut her friends off. I mean, I do think that there's so much psychic energy that comes along with um, trying to shepherd your friends. I mean, you can have that conversation with some, somebody, right? It doesn't mean they're going to come along with you, right, and see what was janky about what they asked. And so, you know, you should feel empowered. I know it was really hard in some cases to cut people off. Their enlightenment is not your responsibility, especially when it comes at the cost of your, you know, psychic health, right? All right, let's go to the next question. The second question is from a listener named Leah Abrams. She's 20. She's of Middle Eastern Jewish descent. Uh, She moved to Alabama in May for a summer internship. And here's Leah's question. I grew up and have spent my whole life in North Carolina, where race and identity played integral roles in my upbringing. Yet being in Alabama, I feel like I've noticed that race and segregation are more explicitly entrenched in daily life. In particular, a friend talked about being warned from a young age not to talk to white women because of his county's violent legacy of lynching black men for even looking at white girls. I feel like I haven't met many interracial couples in my time here at all. Is it really that taboo to be in an interracial relationship in Alabama? If so, why? So when we got this question, we decided to do a little digging. And according to a report from the Pew Research Center, uh, metro areas in the South are the least likely to have new marriages be between people of different races. The Birmingham Hoover Metro in particular was in the bottom 10 for new interracial marriages in the whole country. Only about 6% of newlyweds in Birmingham are interracial couples. Anybody want to guess where the number one one metro area for interracial marriages is in the United States? Just take a wild guess. DC, I heard. heard. DC, I heard Seattle, which is crazy. Have you been to Seattle? Yeah. <laughs> New York, I heard. Atlanta, Texas. Y'all are like thousands of thousands of miles off. It's actually Honolulu. Honolulu, Hawaii. Something like 44% of the new marriages in Honolulu, Hawaii are between people of different races. Gigi, yeah. report on this city. Let's just keep in mind that Alabama was the last state to overturn its ban on interracial marriage. That was in 2000, which when you think about it, was not all that long ago, right? So, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this, a lot of interracial couples, and there's a lot going on. Long story short, it is not all that common, although it kind of depends on where you are. So if you are in the city of Birmingham, if you are on the campus of UAB, Not that big a deal, not that uncommon. But if you're in maybe Coleman County or someplace like that, (laughs) probably not going to find very many interracial couples. It was a knowing laugh. So it kind of depends on where you are. I spoke with a woman who is white, whose husband is from Kenya. And she told me that when they married back in the 90s, here in Alabama, her grandmother said to her, I'm glad at least that your grandfather has passed away already because this would have killed him. Wow. That's deep. But it's on the other side as well where, you know, a lot of African-American men might still have that sort of, you know, maybe have been told by their fathers not to talk to white women, not to look at white women, not to get into relationships with white women because it's just not going to go over well. It's just not something that you do. And it wasn't that it was just inconvenient or anything like that, but I mean, there was a point in history, and it was not all that long ago, where your life would be in danger if, you know, you were a black man pursuing a white woman. And so, 
I spoke to a sociologist at UAB who studies race and culture, and she said there are a lot of uh, young people who feel like that was 200 years ago in their minds, but in reality, we're not all that far removed from that part of history. So that still lives on in a lot of people. All that said, the vast majority of people told me that for the younger generation, it is more and more commonplace and it's okay by them as opposed to their parents who might still be resistant to interracial relationships. Mayor Woodman, there's a lot of nodding happening right here. <laughs> Did, were you discouraged from having interracial relationships growing up? Was, was this school. a conversation that happened for you? How did that work in high school? I mean, if I reflect back when I was 15 and 16, 17 in high school, I don't think that's something that you actually did for real. Was it explicit not to do it? No. Was it, was it something that you just, that you felt? Yes. Now, she's right. I don't know how much more I can add to what she just said. My mother is married. She's in an interracial relationship. Her husband is white. They've been married over a decade now. I think it's interesting watching my own mother from a personal standpoint being an inter interracial relationship. Um, I think for each generation we see, not just in Birmingham but in the state, things change, change for each generation for the better. And Gigi, I mean, this is still like, this is a lot of this about the segregation we see elsewhere, right? The segregation we see in schools and elsewhere, right? Yeah, I mean, um, pretty much all of our public spaces, you know, kids from a young age mostly go to segregated schools. So Church. churches, uh, parks, restaurants, you know, a lot of times there's pretty much segregated, right? So you don't have to work that hard to stay away from somebody in another race. It's, it's almost kind of done for you in, in the circles that you kind of grow up in. Leah, this is real. It is. You're not making things up. All right, we have one last question. It comes from a listener named Mallory Mitchell. She's 26, she's black. She's originally from Alabama, and she has a question regarding Mayor Woodfin's election. Let's hear it. When you look at Alabama's largest cities, Birmingham, Montgomery, Mobile, and Huntsville, they all have very different histories and demographics. Of all four, Birmingham is the one city that seems progressive enough to elect a young black man to the office of mayor. However, that looks like it might be changing. What makes Birmingham different from other large cities in the state? Mayor Woodfin, you gotta take this first. I think one of the things that makes our city different is that we're the economic development engine of the entire state. When you think about workforce, that the organizations, whatever lane they're in, whether it's healthcare or whether it's financial services, manufacturing, which are some of our top three industries here in our city, I think about their workforce becoming younger. So all my friends, when I moved back here 15 years ago, no one my age at 22 and 23 wanted to be in the city. They wanted to go to Atlanta. They wanted to go to Nashville. They wanted to go somewhere else. But I think the same cohort of people now who 22 and 23, they want to stay here. And so it's good to see our city be a part of the national trend of people wanting to be in the urban core, in the central city. With that, that's bringing a whole new flavor of young people and new people 
And I think from a governing standpoint, people want their municipal government to reflect the same thing we're seeing in the private sector. They wanted to reflect the same thing they're seeing on the social scene, which is something new. Um, and that's what our candidates see in campaign represented. Now, does having a city that is as black as Birmingham is, does that just make it bluer to start with, right? Like, are you starting a little bit, just have, you have this like, very deep democratic base here, I imagine. It does, it is a very, it's a huge democratic base here. Um, but that, that goes for the entire city, uh, black and white. Gigi, is there anything you want to add to that? So, I mean, if you, just listening to him speak, he mentioned young voters so many times, and that was key, I think, not just young African-American voters, but white millennial voters as well. Um, I think, yeah, young people were, were and, and are a big part of the city's moving to the next level. I, how about this? There were over 5,000 18 to 35-year-olds who participated for the first time in a municipal election. Hmm. in the city of Birmingham because of what I said earlier. Like, millennials definitely want to be here. All right, so I want to sum this up for Mallory. She wants to know what makes Birmingham different. And what you're saying is there's more economic opportunity here. There's an economic engine that's moving. It's drawing in young people. Um, It's also a predominantly African-American city, which makes it tend towards being more democratic and progressive. And, you know, you've got young millennials who are out exercising their right to vote. Would I have summed that up for Mallory? Sounds good to me. <laughs> well, that's great. That, that was our final question. And both of you were awesome on the stage. Incredible. WBHM's Gigi Dubam. She's the news director. She's fabulous. And Mara Woodfin, thank you so much for doing this and being here for both segments. Thank you. We thought since we have an amazing drummer on this stage, PJ Spragans, we'd let him take it away on the drums. All right, y'all, before we go tonight, special thanks to WBHM for generously inviting us to Birmingham. In addition to Chuck Holmes and Gigi Duban, who you met earlier, we need to give a special shout out to Audrey Atkins for her Thank logistical you, prowess, You're amazing. her love and knowledge of Birmingham, and her amazing attitude. The WBHM recording engineers are Daryl McCullough and Theo Metz. We're grateful for our recording engineer, Andy Huther, back at NPR headquarters. Support your local station, WBHM. Supporting your station is how you support us and other NPR podcasts like Pop Culture Happy Hour, who are our play cousins, the Politics Podcast, and all the other podcasts at NPR you love. And special thanks to our volunteers tonight. We couldn't have done this without you. A round of applause for everybody who volunteered. Thank you, PJ Spragans. And back at NPR are thanks to Anya Grunman, Neil Carruth, Steve Drummond, and the NPR events team, which includes Jessica Goldstein, Ali Prescott, Elle Mannion, and our illustrator, L.A. Johnson. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Walter Ray Watson, Sammy Ennigan, and our editor, Leah Danella. 
Thanks to everybody here at UAB's Alice Stevens Center in Birmingham. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Birmingham, be easy. Peace. It's Ophira Eisenberg. This week on Ask Me Another, we've got comedian, rapper, and one-eighth of Ocean's 8, Aquafina, plus drag race champ, Sasha Velour. So join me for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.